I've I've come to learn over time that there will always be people who make the wrong decisions. But in the end of the day, it's really at the top that things should change when it comes to decisions in war. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. As the Netherlands is still in a coronavirus lockdown, we have another interview via video link. And today we invited Dutch law professor and human rights lawyer Lisbeth Segveld. Hi, Lisbeth. Hi there. Nice to be here. It's great that you've managed to join us. Uh, Lisbeth is very well known internationally for, well, lots of different things, but especially for a series of cases where she has forced the Dutch state to own up to its responsibility in international crimes of failing to prevent atrocities. She got a landmark ruling from the Dutch Supreme Court in 2013 after some 11 years of litigation, which said that the Dutch state could be held partially responsible for some of the victims of the 1995 Srebrenica massacre because Dutch UN peacekeepers hadn't done enough to keep Bosnian Muslims who sought refuge in the UN compound there safe. Yes, this was a major break with jurisprudence, not only in the Netherlands, but also internationally, because it's always been held that individuals and states cannot be held accountable for their conduct during UN missions because they're granted immunity as part uh, when they get sent out as UN peacekeepers. Another case that she's well known for in the Netherlands is that she got damages for Indonesian widows and children whose relatives were killed by Dutch troops in the 1947 Rabagade massacre, to name just two of the things she did. So one of the questions we wanted to ask you, Lisbeth, is that could we say we see a thread here of state responsibility? We interview quite a few human rights lawyers and sometimes they go for more individuals or for specific war criminals, let's say torturers. But your focus here is on holding states and especially the Dutch state responsible. Is is that what you're doing? Yeah, that's what I'm doing. I started out when I uh, commenced as a lawyer with criminal cases, but I soon realized that you're giving your case away to the prosecutor and um, he or she has to be prepared to follow up on it. And since these cases are politically heavy, uh, they're loaded, your chances of success are not very big when you represent these victims. And so I thought in the civil law, in the civil courts, I've more room to build the case in uh, along the lines that we see it should develop. And also that means that you can hold institutions responsible, which is criminally much more difficult. I mean, a state, you cannot hold criminally accountable, but in civil law, you can. And I've I've come to learn over time that there will always be people who make the wrong decisions. But in the end of the day, it's really at the top that things should change when it comes to decisions in war. It is really at the ministry that they give the green light for actions that lead to, to tragedies. When we talk about large-scale abuses, large-scale actions with n- numerous victims, 
it's generally a top level decision. And so also in, also for that reason, it has m more my interest to uh, direct my attention to, uh, to states than uh, to individuals. I read an interview with you where you said you like to operate in the vacuum. Can you explain that to us? What, you know, I understand the, the claims and if you're uh, doing uh, civil cases, you can shape the case much more and you're not reliant on prosecutors. But a lot in these civil cases, you have to kind of make law yourself. You have to get the structure in there. Yeah, um, absolutely. You build your own case. You give the victims a voice. It's their case. The vacuum... Well, it's always nice to do something that no one else has, has done yet. That's, I mean, that gives me a lot of satisfaction. Absolutely. It, it may give everyone satisfaction. And as a matter of fact, there's just no, no one in the Netherlands doing this. So we are also, as a matter of fact, op operating in a vacuum. If we weren't any longer, I would still pursue this, this line of action and would still go for damages in armed conflict situations. The downside of a civil case is that it takes a long time. You come with your own writ of summons uh, that you have to write. You have to collect your own facts. In a criminal case, that's all done by the prosecutor with a large body of people behind him or her. So it may go much faster. There's more money available. So there are downsides to it as well. But at the end of the day, I, the process as such, building a case is also satisfactory to the victims because it's kind of a healing process to present their story to make themselves hurt. When you're taking these cases on, you're talking about what's, what the victim gets out of it. Quite often that seems to be a financial damage that you're asking uh, people to, to pay up. And you're also actually professor of reparations at Amsterdam University. I didn't recognize that. What Are reparations kind of always financial? I mean, is it is that that the way it should should be? Why why do you focus on finance? I mean, a, a, a fact is that under the law, to start a civil claim, you you need to ask for you need to have had damages, otherwise you have no interest. So you need to claim that you have suffered material or immaterial immaterial losses. That's just an, a requirement under the law. But sometimes the amounts these amounts are really small. You know. I mean, we recently won a case for an Indonesian widow and the court awarded her 123 euros after litigation that started in 2014. 123. I mean, the court kind of apologized for it because they said we realized that this is really low and that had to do with the time that these crimes were committed in our colonial past. And so they had to base, the court had to base itself on the salary levels in 47 in South Sulawesi. The process, the procedure would still have been started had we all known that these damages were that low because it was a recognition of an execution of her husband. And it unveiled so much uncharted territory, so many facts that we didn't know before that it was still worthwhile going through it. But in, also in answer to your question, you have to have had suffered damages. But then in terms of reparation, what do you ask for? You can also ask for an apology, for example. And we know that in the first case, the Rawakade case, to which you, uh, which you mentioned in, in your introduction, also the, that was the first Indonesian case in 2008. Each of the widows got, by way of settlement, 20,000 euros. But also this, the government issued apologies to the, to the whole village. 
which was good because that was received well by the by the widows but also since these atrocities have a much wider impact on the population in the area these people can also receive these apologies and understand them as being addressed to them as well so they have a wider impact which is good so it's just it's really way too simple to translate a civil case in to money and just for our kind of international listeners this doesn't compare to us cases where you could get like millions of dollars in in damages i mean um i know for example the uh, payout for reparations uh in the srebrenica case for hasan nohanovic the former dutch pet interpreter was something like um 20000 euros which is not even like a year salary in the Netherlands um he got a totally we we objected to that and then he got a, a totally different amount i'm not i'm not allowed to to say the amount but that was mentioned in the media at some point but that's not that's not the correct amount but nevertheless it could it could be an amount in in i mean it's not it's you're right in the sense that it 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 is i mean this case was about much more but it's never about millions it has never been and it will never be in the Netherlands because we're not that kind of we don't have that kind of legal culture in the Netherlands. Uh, I remember the case that we did against Frans van Anraat, uh, who is a Dutch businessman who uh, supplied Saddam Hussein with chemicals, uh, which were then used against the Kurds in Halabja in northern Iraq and Iranian Kurds. At some point, an American lawyer uh, stepped forward, and I was already involved in that case, and he stepped forward and he said, why on earth are you directing your aims against Frans van Anrad? He has, he just has no money whatsoever. What are you doing? And I said, you know, this is a matter of principle, but he just, he said, it's, it's a waste of your time. And it was so interesting because we, we just view this differently. Um, are you trying to kind of get a change in the way that a state operates by what you're doing? Or are you trying to get reparations for the victims? Well, both. I mean, my, my obligation is, of course, to do the first. If I give up on the first, I would fail in my job. But of course, as a lawyer and doing this for now 20 years, I, I hope that change is affected. I think there is very slowly, very, very slowly, we can witness a bit of change doesn't go fast. I think as soon as the um, uh, state officials at the Ministry of Defense are slowly replaced and we don't, do not have any longer the, the white man of 50-something and we have a younger generation of uh, state agents that have been educated in the same time as I have and have experienced all these cases that that different decisions will be made. And I I see, not so much, but I hope to see that in Hawija, uh, Iraq, uh, Mosul, that we are being met with, you know, in a, in a different, with a different approach. I hope so, but it's, um, I'm, I'm very, very, uh, very modest in that, in that hope, but uh, yeah. But I, do, I definitely do it with a, with a longer term vision. That may also have to do with my uh, appointment, of course, at the university. But also, I mean, um, in, with a view to future victims, you know, the way you can achieve justice for the, the victims that you represent now may affect changes for, for victims in the future that will, you know, that, who will be there 
uh, without any doubt. So, yeah, it's not a case in that sense, maybe different from other lawyers. It's not just case by case, but that's also because I'm very focused on a, on a very defined area of law and a very defined group of people. That is not, I, don't, I do not take this case by case. And I've seen you almost as long as I started following international justice and Dutch international cases, which was in 2001. I started with the Nuhanovic Srebrenica case. I followed the Van Anrad case, which you just explained, the Dutch uh, businessman accused of selling chemicals to the Saddam Hussein regime. And I remember at the beginning, we were all kind of, you were seen and the media also thought that you were kind of a taker of lost causes. And now in the media, now when you take a case, we say to each other, oh, it's a Zegfeld case. We better pay attention because this might lead to something. Uh, how do you keep kind of the stamina to have these 10 years of very long litigation, pre, uh, appeals that goes to the Supreme Court? How do you keep the faith in this process? And how do you get the victims that you represent to kind of stay with you? Because it's a very long, harrowing process that digs up old wounds all the time. Yeah, this, fir this, this, this first half of my uh, career with these lost cases, Mother Teresa, I was called. <laughs> Very nice woman, taking up uh, cases for, um, for poor people, but not something to, uh, to pay attention to, really. I started in a way that I'm still uh, conducting the cases today, and the victims, the people I represent, are still in it in the same way, I believe. For them, what happened to them, either uh, severe injuries or loss of their relatives, their lives will never be the same. So they will be in that new life forever. So it's not like, you know, paying a bill or obtaining money or whatever that you want to get over as soon as you can. It's, you'll, you'll be stuck with it anyway. So... Yes, it takes a long time, but they are in a way okay with it. And for me, what I've come to learn is um, we're, of course, not a big firm. There's not much money. I can't put like uh, 10 or 15 lawyers on one case. So we work generally with two, sometimes three people on one case. Uh, we have more cases at the same time. And so we need, we need time in order to do a case well. And that's, that's because of the, the resources, but it's also because of all these cases are difficult and they take, they need time to develop, both in the, your, your, your legal view to a case, like the Srebrenica case, the way we started wasn't the way we ended with it. Our, our, uh, the legal concepts that we, were, that we were able to develop over time really demanded time kind of you know you need to 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 sleep over them to have them to have them kind of sink in you, you facts that you have to cut out they're just huge events in history you know you don't litigate about the second world war but what what kind of what kind of small thing do you have to pick out in order to be successful and that needs yeah that that needs time and uh, cases that um, develop in uh, over a short period of time are generally not the, the best ones in, in my experience and those that we uh, persist in are are likely to have the best uh, the best outcome one one case that i that with a totally different experience was the dutch railways case with salo muller who 
pushed the Dutch railways to pay individual compensation for the Jews who were embarked on trains to Westerbork. Quite relevant these, t these days when we uh, uh, memorize what uh, the, um, uh, the end of the Second World War. Um, over 100,000 Jews were put on trains from uh, everywhere in the Netherlands to the uh, German border on their way to um, the German um, concentration camps. And the Dutch railways had done quite a lot in terms of collective reparation. But what Salo Muller, my client, wanted was individual recognition, individual compensation. And he was, it, again, it was not about big amounts of money, but he was really like, they have to suffer, they have to pay for us, for each of us. I don't want a statue at the railway station. I want them, the railways, face me, face us. And so he approached them. They didn't entirely ignore him. Long story short, at some point he came to me, I wrote a letter to the Dutch railways, and within three months we had a settlement for all those people that were still alive and their offspring, but then the first generation, the, the, the kids uh, who were still alive. Not a huge amount of money, 15,000 for uh, survivors and 7,500 for children who has lost their, uh, their parents. But since he had lost both parents in a concentration camp and his wife as well, for them it meant uh, 30,000 uh, euros in damages. And that was done like overnight. I was completely wow. And I based that on, well, experience that I had and the railway said, oh God, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're not going to defend <laughs> these, these actions in a court against these people. <laughs> Let's prevent this. And so it was, it was kind of a, you know, yeah, a, a, a success uh, based on these, these first 10 years of, you know, desperate <laughs> action, uh, actions in court. But it's a belief. I mean, that's how you keep going. It's a belief. How is it then that um, people find you now, nowadays? I mean, do, you have such a name that... that a lot of people now approach you because, uh, I mean, Stephanie provided me with this huge long list of all the different cases that you've been involved in. And um, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Do, do, do people actually now call you up and say, hey, we want the Zegfeld effect? <laughs> well, you know how to find me. That's the same. I mean, that's how it goes. It's just, yeah, the word spreads. What, you know, I don't know. They, it's, you know, it's, it's how it goes uh, these days. You look on, on, uh, on internet and, uh, yeah. Of course, it's linked to the Netherlands. So it has, in that sense, it always a bit to my disappointment that we still do not have this international legal order where you can litigate in a proper way for people. That is how it should be. And that's not possible. It's either about states or it's criminal law in international court, which has very limited reach, in my, in my view, and otherwise it goes through states. So for me, it does, it needs to have a Dutch uh, connection. And then if you, if you look for a Dutch lawyer on human rights, yeah, I, I guess it's difficult to uh, not to find me. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's, that's success pays off. Is it the way then that they find you or do you actively also look for clients? Is there a situation or a case where you look at it and think, if only I could litigate that that would be such a good case 
Uh, there has been, there's one example of that, the one and only, and that's uh, Iraq, Havitia, recent case that we're now working on. That case, uh, I was already representing victims from Iraq, and that case had been uh, covered up for five years. And then uh, through Dutch uh, investigative journal journalists in October last year, it was revealed that it was the Dutch who threw the bombs on Hawija with at least 70 people killed. It is one of the biggest disasters in the uh, coalition warfare against IS. All of the coalition members have been have, have achieved that this, you know, the perpetrator, the, the state responsible is not known to, to any one of the victims. And when that became known in the Dutch media, and I know the journalists because we work together a lot, I called them up and I said, please, you don't have to give them my name, but give them the number of the Dutch bar because they are entitled to compensation. It doesn't have to be my case, but there's a larger interest than your headlines. You're, you're obliged, and, and I actually got into a conflict with the journalists because they, they thought that they, they looked at it as a kind of a conflict of interest because they were journalists and uh, for them this was a big, big, big story. And they wanted to stay away from, uh, at the same time, be involved and connected to the victims in this way. And their ob objectivity came into, uh, was, could be questioned. And I said, you know, you, you just can't do that. You, you're obliged to these people to, to help them. They weren't. And then I reached out to different journalists I knew and they did it. And I said, just give them a number of in the Hague uh, for, for the bar. But then, of course, they gave my number. And, uh, and that's how we were able to file a case on behalf of 44 uh, victims last week from Hawija, who just, you know, who just didn't know where to go to, who to reach out to, lost everything. So yes, I think even there may be, it's not like ambulance chasing, it's more like ch taking your responsibility that these people are entitled to reparation. If no one tells them, we get away with everything. So for our listeners who are not quite familiar with the Hawija case, this is an incident of uh, a coalition bomb attack on a, on a, a bomb factory uh, from uh, by Islamic State in Iraq that was carried out by Dutch fighter jets, the um, investigative journalists revealed. And there were 70 people killed uh, because the explosion was much larger than I guess they expected or they had counted on it and uh, disregarded these lives as quote-unquote collateral damage. And um, when this was revealed, um, as Lisbeth said, uh, she made sure that the victims somehow got hold of a number for a Dutch lawyer, and she's now filed a claim, which is, I think, with the Dutch Defense Ministry at the moment. So we'll see what comes to that. And for those um, of our listeners who are outside of the, the Netherlands, are you creating a space here in the Netherlands for this kind of work? Or is it that there, there already is a space in the Netherlands that you can, that you can use? I, I'm wondering whether it's because we already have this system of international courts and tribunals and quite a lot of them are here and therefore people are more open and aware of it. So, or, or, or maybe it's, it works the other way around. Maybe the Dutch lawyers and the the Dutch court system actually say hey you shouldn't be using our national system you should be going somewhere else how does that work no I think it exists independently we do get every now and then a request like you have all these international courts here does it you know can you please take on this case because I understand inter international justice is here um uh, that's not true uh I wouldn't say on the contrary but it's what we do is is 
is not has no connection with the international courts based here. We do have a a good court system, and for war damages, we have our civil code on the on the basis of which you are entitled to compensation, which is, for example, completely different from the U.S. system, the American system where you can uh, get a payment if you have losses, but that's not based on liability and on actual damages. So for this, uh, for war damages, our uh, normal civil code applies and you can obtain actual damages. And so we, we make use of these rules, just as in every other case you make use of these rules when it concerns smaller cases or of a completely different type or like privacy or other different human rights uh, matters or commercial law issues, whatever. So, it, it, I mean, it's a space that has all, all, always can, uh, existed, but it's, I mean, it doesn't pay, of course. I mean, if you're really looking for a big salary, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> uh, and actually, now I should be making some money instead of talking to you. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so that's, I think, uh, yeah. Um, Again, uh, you, sne- you should be um, convinced of uh, a higher goal, you know, when, when you do this. And uh, so it's a space that's there, but who's stepping in? I must also say that we have, a, which is quite important, we have a legal aid council that makes that people can get paid. Uh, at least they, can, they are paid for my costs through that system, which is, of course, excellent. So, Lisbeth, we had you on the podcast earlier very briefly about the Ziada case. Uh, which is the case of a Dutch-Palestinian man who is trying to sue the Israeli general Benjamin Gantz and another very high-up Israeli uh, military official for uh, war crimes because part of his family was killed in the Gaza war. Where is that case now and what are the other cases you have ongoing that have international impact? Well, the Ziada case, we, uh, he, we did just decided to appeal. Um, so we lost in first instance and um, it was... Yeah, it's a principal case. It's not. It's not an easy case. The point is, of course, that it's highly political. Um, and if the court would allow it, it would mean that uh, individuals uh, can indeed be sued on the basis of universal civil jurisdiction in Dutch court. We do have that legal basis. Uh, so our argument has been that if you have no access to justice elsewhere, you have ac- access to justice uh, in our courts because Mr. Tijada uh, has the Dutch nationality, lives here. Uh, has his family here so there's a dutch connection he cannot access uh, israeli court so he can he can go uh, to a dutch court but bef- previous before that argument comes the f- question of immunity and these two generals mr Gunch and mr Eichel, were of course functioning as military and so in that capacity they were also carrying out conducting orders of, of the israeli state and so they invoked immunity and they succeeded in that argument our point is, uh, has been that if that the immunity argument is fine, but if it comes down, if it comes to war crimes, you commit those crimes in individual capacity. So yes, they are uh, state actions, but they're also individual actions because crimes are committed by individuals. And for crimes, you cannot invoke immunity. And if you cannot invoke immunity in the criminal court, which is well accepted, you cannot invoke it in a civil court either because that's an let's say a less has a lesser impact on the personal uh, on a personal level and that argument stands and stands strongly in my view but if accepted it means that you can prosecute or you can uh, litigate hold liable individuals for in the international crimes 
in Dutch courts if there's a link with the Netherlands. So let's, I mean, the impact is just huge. And I've always said if it, if it weren't about Israel, uh, we would have succeeded. If it were, would have been a case against Rwandan state officials, uh, it would have been much, much easier. Just to give you an example, uh, the, the, the MH17 case on the downing of a Malaysian airplane with nearly 200 Dutch uh, people on board. This case is now prosecuted in a Dutch court. A claim against those Russian suspects uh, will not fail or strand on immunity, no doubt, because these victims are Dutch nationals. And so uh, the political approach to this case is completely different from the case against the Israeli state officials. So no doubt that the Court of Appeal will say, uh, hold on, let's just look further than this courtroom, which makes the case difficult, but no less principle, and uh, we go for it. Uh, Lisbeth, we always have a few uh, final questions that we ask to all of our guests. And the first one is, what does everybody get wrong about your work? What do they imagine you do that they get wrong? That I make money over the backs of my victims. My victims. <laughs> First, I do not make money. Second, it's not over the back of my victims. It's their case. And um, just put themselves yourself in their shoes and uh, try to, to uh, understand a little bit the situation rather than looking at it from the outside. And our second question is always, what didn't we ask you, but we should have? Where are you like, these ladies had a nice interview with me, but I really wanted them to say this and they didn't give me the chance. Well, I think, um, you know, the focus has always been quite a lot on, on me as a person, on me as doing something special, which of course I'm proud of. But it should be, if you look into the future, it should become more normal. You should be able to make money with human rights, earn a proper salary with human rights, make them just a normal concept in, in courts. And, and so more lawyers take on these kind of cases. And then it, it will become less like Zegveld cases. Now it's kind of similar, you know, it's war victims, it's Zegveld. And in a way it's nice, but it shouldn't be. And so I think the, a good question uh, would have been like developments in the future would be really be less attention on me and, and, you know, more people doing these kind of cases. And so I wouldn't be that much more, uh, <laughs> much uh, less often to uh, these shows as, oh, well, this is so special. <laughs> Oh, I wanted to ask one thing that I uh, forgot. There was recent research uh, from uh, Dutch Historical Society who said that the Dutch history education is not giving enough attention to Srebrenica and focusing too much on Dutch bad. Do you read that with a kind of satisfaction? Yeah, that's my broader uh, goal, my broader aim, my broader, uh, yeah, absolute passion that, that this should really change. I know I, I, I get those messages. I know the people who try to rewrite the school books and it's extremely important. And I do see now in the in the books of my children that it's, it is in there. It's still being described as uh, passivity. So they were too passive Dutch, but rather that they actively pushed people out of the compound. So it's not still not accurate, but it nears kind of accuracy <laughs> and so it needs that's all again it needs and that's also why my cases takes long it needs time to to digest it's too big to just swallow but this uh, yeah it's, it's school books are incredibly important incredibly important the dutch indies incredibly important what i was taught 
when I was 18 and the colonies were part of my, of my uh, exam, it was just nothing about these, these crimes. It was amazing. It was, yeah, we all know it. I mean, it was these uh, polichinelle axes, police uh, actions, how do you translate them? And uh, yeah, there were some uh, excesses, yeah, but nothing else. So I couldn't even believe when this, came, this case came to my desk. I, I just didn't believe uh, the client. I said, what are you saying? It can't be. It's just not true. So how amazing is that? That's your own history. And I'm sure you're working very hard uh, under lockdown, as we all seem to be sort of working super, super hard, loads and loads of, of meetings. But in your spare time, if you have any, have you uh, been reading anything recently or seen anything or listened to anything recently that you'd like to recommend more widely to our audience? Well, I'm, um, I'm reading Eichmann now, Eichmann in Jerusalem. From uh, by Hannah Arendt. To be uh, frank with you, I, I've been asked to comment on it and I always wanted to read it and I hadn't. And now I have time to read it. And what uh, really stands out is the detail with which she describes the court case and how much it has gone lost on people. How easily people report on stuff that they have so little knowledge on or not even really an interest to to you know to look under the surface so it's it's the book really stands out as a piece of 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 detail that uh for everyone who's uh interested in international justice uh, yeah have a read great thank you very much you're kind of confirming your own myth here lisbeth when we ask you what you read for downtime <laughs> you read the eichmann trial book <laughs> i'm sorry i could have mentioned different books as well but what i mean i've i've, I've been watching the godfather to understand you and other different kind of people. I've never had time for that. So uh, I'm, I'm watching television as well, that, but I never really, never ever do. So uh, it's more to just reading this uh, kind of, uh, um, you know, stuff that um, you expect me to read. I don't know. <laughs> well, we'd like to thank you very much for making the time to come on the podcast and uh, uh uh, even if there is a new generation of people following you, we will carry on following your cases, Lisbeth. Okay. Asymmetrical Haircuts is presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode has obviously been recorded at home, but we'd still like to give a shout out to our regular host, Humanity Hub, and we hope to return there soon. Music was by audionautics.com. We're available on all major podcast apps. Give us a rating and spread the word.